What would you say if I told you that Michael Jackson didn't create the moonwalk? Why, you'd probably call me a dirty, rotten liar, wouldn't you? But you'd be wrong, because while the king of pop unquestionably made it his signature move after doing the dance while performing Billie Jean on the TV special Motown 25 Yesterday, Today, Forever, it was actually taught to him by Derek Cooley Jackson and Jaron Casper Candidate after Michael Jackson saw them perform the move on the 1970s dance program Soul Train which Jackson, Michael Jackson, was a huge fan of. And even they weren't the first to do the moonwalk on Soul Train. Jeffrey Daniel did it in 1974, and then later in 1982, on the UK's Top of the Pops, to the tune of Shalimar's A Night to Remember. And yet, even he cannot claim ownership of this move. All the way back in 1932... Cab Calloway was doing a step that was a clear precursor to the moonwalk that we know today. It was called The Buzz. Bill Bailey followed Calloway in 1955, and the world-famous mime Marcel Marceau used the move to perform his Walking Against the Wind bit. Scattered curiosity, if you want to actually hear Marcel Marceau speak, Watch Mel Brooks's severely underrated piece of cinema, Silent Movie. He is the only person to talk in the entire film. Now I'm just waiting patiently for Spaceballs 2 to come out. And another favorite film of mine, and Chicago classic, is The Blues Brothers, where James Brown does his camel walk while he's rejoicing as a preacher with his excellently acrobatic, vocally powerful congregation, and it, too, looks strikingly similar to the moonwalk. And if you'd like to learn how to do the moonwalk, there are several videos on YouTube, and you can get pretty decent at it pretty quickly. I'll break it down for you right now so that you don't shut me off to go learn how to do it. Start by putting one foot flat on the floor in front of you, and your back foot should go into the tiptoe position. Then you slide the front foot behind you, resulting in the back foot now becoming the front foot. Then you flatten the new front foot and go into the tiptoe position on your new back foot, rinse and repeat. Dance-tastic. And while Michael Jackson's autobiography is called Moonwalk, and he starred in the 1988 film Moonwalker, Michael Jackson never went to outer space. Although some might argue that he was from there. I am fascinated with our universe. The fact that we exist at all is such a lucky set of circumstances that we take for granted every day. There are many people who are convinced that the Earth is the only planet inhabited with life, despite the overwhelming numbers that would suggest that life must exist elsewhere in the universe, and maybe even elsewhere in our own solar system. We all know that the main ingredient needed for life as we know it 
is liquid water and that Earth is the only object orbiting our sun that has it? Or do we? And is it? We are just now getting to know the over 149 moons in our solar system. And several of them have water ice and could quite possibly have liquid water oceans deep below their icy surface, being heated by geothermic pockets. Now the life there won't be people, but rather microbial life. But still, that would be the discovery of the century, or the millennium, or even all of world history. Did I just blow your mind with the number of moons we have in our solar system? I wouldn't be shocked if I did, and with modern technology, that number is expected to grow. And all of these moons have names that are far more imaginative than just the moon. Though I guess ours should be called the moon, the moon, because without it, humans would most likely not be here. Don't worry, we're going to get to know all of those bizarre and beautiful moons eventually. But first, I want to cover some of the basic facts of our moon before we get there. Let's start at the birth of our moon. Now, if you are a creationist, you may just want to shut this episode off right now because I'm going to be giving you information based in science. Our moon was formed four and a half billion years ago when our solar system was between 20 and 50 million years old. And a planetoid object by the name of Thea collided with the early forming Earth which broke a chunk of dirt and rocks off that coalesced into the asteroid-pocked natural satellite that has been orbiting Earth ever since. This theory of the moon's birth is supported by evidence found in the rocks that astronauts have brought back to Earth from our moon that have an identical isotopic makeup as the rocks here on Earth. They have yet to find such close matches anywhere else in our universe. Ours is the fifth biggest moon in the solar system and the biggest moon compared to the relative size of its host planet, unless you count Charon, which is orbiting the dwarf planet Pluto. Our moon sits at a comfortable 238,857 miles away, or... 1.2 light seconds from Earth. Though data suggests that the moon is slowly moving further from Earth at a rate of 3.8 centimeters per year. And in 50 million years, the moon will orbit Earth in 47 days rather than the 27.3 days that we know today. And this drifting of the moon has increased in Earth Day by two hours in the past 600 million years. 70 million years ago, the length of a day was 1% shorter, which meant that there were four extra days in a year. Our moon is 25% the diameter of Earth and 1 80th its mass. Due to this and lack of atmosphere, you would weigh less on the moon because its gravity is only 16% of what it is here. The moon has a solid, iron-rich core, just like the Earth, but producing only one-hundredth of the exomagnetic field. And it experiences moonquakes. 
which was discovered by the instruments that were left on the moon from the Apollo missions. And while moonquakes are less frequent and weaker than earthquakes are, moonquakes can last an hour because there is no water present to soften the shaking. The tallest mountain on the moon is half the size of Mount Everest. It's called Mons Huygens and was named for the Dutch astronomer Christian Huygens, who we'll be getting to know a little bit better a little bit later. Scientists today don't believe that any major mountains were made by tectonic events on the moon as they are on Earth. And our moon is pretty bright, don't you think? And this is due to a permanent dust cloud that surrounds it, due to an estimated five tons of cosmic particles hitting the moon every single day. And the dusting process takes about 10 minutes. Five minutes to get the dust shot up in the air and hover above the moon, and then another five minutes for it to slowly fall back down to the surface. And because the moon rotates on its axis in about the same amount of time it takes to orbit Earth, we only ever see about 59% of the moon, and it's always the exact same side facing us due to tidal locking, which gives us the near side of the moon and the far side of the moon. Some people also call this the dark side of the moon. Thank you very much, Pink Floyd. But that term is misleading because the dark side of the moon gets just as much sunlight as the near side does once a day, we are just unable to see it from Earth. In fact, we never saw the dark side of the moon until 1959 when the Soviet Union snapped pictures of the moon from their Luna 3 spacecraft. Whichever side of the moon is in the dark has freezing temperatures of negative 153 degrees Celsius, which, in turn, gets as hot as 107 degrees Celsius in the sunlight. And when there's a new moon, which is when the moon appears totally dark to us on Earth, that is when the near side of the moon becomes the dark side. And what I find really interesting is that both sides of the moon look distinctively different. The near side that we see all the time has a lot of those darker blackish areas called Maria's and the far side has almost none of that. The far side of the moon has more of the light colored areas called Terra or Highlands. The North Pole of the moon kind of looks a little similar to what a giant hurricane looks like on the Weather Channel map. And the south pole of the moon looks like a bunch of bubbling oil that's seeping up from the crust. And a quick rundown of the phases of the moon. New moon, crescent, first quarter, waxing gibbous, full moon, waning gibbous, last quarter, crescent, and then new moon again. And a few moments ago, I mentioned tidal locking. Let's quickly touch upon the tides themselves, shall we? It goes without saying that every living creature that ever walked on the earth has been looking up at the moon since the dawn of time. But it wasn't until the 1600s that our understanding of the moon really took flight. In 1609, Galileo Galilei made drawings of the moon's craters and mountains 
as he saw them through his Galilean telescope. And you can go back in time and actually look at these pictures he sketched in his book, Starry Messenger, which also include the four moons of Jupiter that he discovered. And they're really good drawings, too. And they show the moon as being bumpy with craters and mountains instead of smooth and full of lakes and oceans as previous generations and cultures believed the Maria to be. Galileo had been writing back and forth with his contemporary, Johannes Kepler, to state his belief in a Copernican solar system, which is a solar system model with the sun in the middle. And Kepler asked Galileo to build him one of these Galilean telescopes so that he could also study the night sky. And Galileo tells him that he's too busy and that he has no more spare parts. So Kepler turns around and he builds his own telescope, which is actually an improvement on the one that Galileo made. And with it, he correctly theorized the moon's gravitational influence on the tides the very same year. The moon's gravity produces ocean tides and body tides. In fact, back in ancient times, the philosopher Aristotle reasoned that if the brain is mostly water, it must be affected by a full moon just like the tides, giving birth to the words loony lunacy, and lunatic. Luna meaning moon. But rest assured, the moon's gravity is too small to affect one person. Tidal force affects the Earth's oceans and crust. In the oceans, it causes two bulges, one that faces the moon and the other on the opposite side, which causes the tides to rise and fall. When Earth spins on its axis, one ocean bulge at high tide is locked in place by the moon, while the tide on the other side is just the opposite. There are two high tides a day and two low tides a day due to the moon orbiting the Earth in the same direction of the Earth's spin. So, high tides happen about every 12 and a half hours. Scattered curiosity, if the Earth spun 800 times faster, it would throw us right off of it. And due to the direction that the Earth spins on its axis, you can technically throw an object ever so slightly, the teeniest, tiniest bit further, if you throw it westward. Isaac Newton was able to explain why we have two tides a day as far back as the late 1680s. And even he was standing on the shoulders of giants because even further back in the 2nd century BCE, Seleucus explained the tides with his heliocentric theory that put the sun in the middle of the solar system. And the sun also has a tidal effect on the earth except it is only 40% of the strength of the moons due to its distance from the Earth, which is responsible for spring tides and neap tides. Syzygy is a term that is used when the Earth, Sun, and Moon 
are all in line. That's Syzygy, S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. When Syzygy is occurring, the tides are at their maximum levels, called the spring tide. So it's not named after the season of spring, but rather because the tide springs up or jumps or rises. And when the moon is at first or third quarter, the tides reverse at its minimum and gives us the neeps or neap tides. Neap means without power in Anglo-Saxon. The first person to talk about spring tides was Pythias in the year 325 BCE while he was traveling through Britain. Scattered curiosity, tsunamis, which are normally caused by earthquakes under the ocean, are also called tidal waves, but only because they are similar to the tides in the way that they change water levels. But there is zero for sure evidence that the two are linked in any way whatsoever. Also, riptide, storm tide, red tide, hurricane tide, black tide, or tide with bleach also have nothing to do with the high tide or low tide on Earth. The confusion comes with the fact that the word tide was once used to refer to a length of time. And smartly so, because using the tides was a good way for early civilizations to keep time. Although, predicting only by astronomical factors in regard to the tides does not account for weather conditions on Earth. So if there's a flood, that could sometimes give you a lot of water when it's supposed to be low tide. And tide flows and levels have been vital for navigation for centuries. Because a lot of harbors and rivers and lakes all have shallow areas like a sandbar which can block boats to a standstill if they get caught there at low tide. Up until high-tech automatic navigation systems, a high-ranking naval officer had to be able to calculate the effects of the tide by shifting his tides, which meant passing your classes with the Royal Navy. Body tides on the moons of our solar system are essential to our planet systems, and sometimes they can even cause erratic orbits like that of Mars. And just as the stars have helped guide explorers for most of history, so too has the moon, sun, and other moons of the solar system help us keep time, allowing us to predict when certain celestial events, like lunar eclipses, solar eclipses, and the return of Halley's Comet every 75 years, will arise. A lunar eclipse occurs when the Earth goes between the sun and the moon. The moon goes directly behind the Earth into what is known as the umbra or shadow. But this can only happen when you have syzygy. In a total eclipse, the moon takes on a reddish color and is sometimes referred to as a blood moon and it can be seen anywhere on Earth when it is nighttime. 
A solar eclipse, however, can only be seen in specific locations on Earth when they emerge. And while a lunar eclipse can last a few hours and be viewed with naked, unprotected eyes, a solar eclipse only lasts a few minutes. And this is due to the much smaller shadow that the moon casts on it during the event. And a solar eclipse should absolutely not be looked at directly with your bare eyes, but rather with solar glasses, and I'm not just talking about your Ray-Bans, I'm talking about specific solar glasses, or a solar viewing device that you can easily build at home with the cardboard box. Just look it up online. A partial eclipse of the sun is called an occult. And if the Earth had no atmosphere, the moon would be totally dark during an eclipse. The reddish color is produced when the sunlight that reaches the moon passes through a layer of our atmosphere and gets scattered, making it appear red. This is also the reason that sunsets sometimes appear to have a pink or red or even orange or purple color. And if you witnessed an eclipse from the moon, it would look just like the sun was setting or rising behind the earth. Scattered curiosity, on February 29th, 1504, Christopher Columbus used his handy astronomical tables and clocks to predict a lunar eclipse, and he tricked Jamaican natives into believing that he was a god. And he threatened to make the moon disappear if the natives refused to feed and shelter his men. And when the moon disappeared, they begged him to bring it back. Which he did. What a nice guy. Let's give him a holiday. Anyway, every year we see at least two lunar eclipses, but never more than five. The next partial lunar eclipse will occur on August 7th of this year, 2017, and the three following that will all be total lunar eclipses, and they will happen on January 31st and July 27th of the year 2018, and January 21st, 2019. Mark those calendars, which, by the way, have roughly 30 days each, to keep consistent with the phases of the moon. However, sometimes Earth will witness two new moons in a single month, and when that happens, the second new moon is called a blue moon. Also the name of one of my favorite songs and the name of the detective agency on my favorite 1980s dramedy starring Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd, Moonlighting. Who just met... On the way. The next two blue moons will happen on May 18th, 2019, and August 22nd, 2021. We won't see another supermoon, however, until November 23rd, 2034. Before I continue, I need to share a fact that I don't think is fully understood by most people. Our solar system, consisting of eight planets, nine if you can't let Pluto go, which I understand, but if you just embrace it as a dwarf planet, 
then we get more planets. So just consider that. And our solar system's planets collectively amass more than 149 moons. Now, you do the math. We have one moon for Earth, Mars has two, Mercury and Venus have none, so the other moons of our solar system are pretty unevenly divided amongst the rest. And if one moon can affect our planet so dramatically, just imagine looking in the night sky to see several moons and feeling the effects of their orbital gravity. And most of these other moons have names. Awesome names. What's our moon called? The moon. Now, I don't know if that's lazy naming or an empowering title, calling it the moon, no other need to be mentioned. And you know what? I actually kind of lied to you just now. Because before I started doing research for this episode, I thought there were no names for our moon. But it turns out that there are actually a few that are commonly used. And they are... Selene, Cynthia, Diana, Hecate, and Luna. From which, as I said before, we get the words loony, lunar, lunacy, and lunatic. And societies throughout history, all the way up until the 19th century, have been blaming the moon for crazy behavior here on Earth. More on that later. Because before we discuss that, we should properly get introduced to the celestial bodies in our solar suburb of the Milky Way galaxy. First up is Mercury, which is named for the Roman messenger to the gods, Hermes, named so because Hermes was fast on his feet, and Mercury orbits the sun faster than all the rest of the planets due to its close proximity to the star. 88 days to a year on Mercury, by the way. And Mercury has no moons. Venus is the Roman version of the goddess of sex, love, and rock and roll, Aphrodite. And Venus has such a thick atmosphere of carbon dioxide and acid rain that it makes her stunning to look at in the night sky. Very reflective, like our moon. And she, too, has no moons. Let's skip Earth for now and go on to Mars, which is Rome's answer to Ares, the god of war. Makes sense. Blood is red. The planet is red. And the moons of Mars keep the motif going with their Greek names Phobos, which means fright, and Diemos, which means fear, which are the names of Ares' sons who fought alongside their father in war. And these moons of Mars are pretty unique because they are not round spheres like most other moons, but rather these lumpy bodies that have shapes that kind of resemble a baked potato. But their orbits are near-perfect circles, which is another rare occurrence to the solar system. Phobos is actually creeping ever so closer to Mars and will likely crash into the planet in about 40 to 50 million years from now. And the two moons of Mars were discovered in 1877 by Asaph Hall. Next in line is our massive big brother, Jupiter, whose intense gravity helps divert interstellar collisions with Earth. Jupiter is the Roman name for Zeus, king of the gods. 
There are 53 known moons of Jupiter, including the largest in our solar system. Most of these moons are named for people who are linked to Zeus, and a majority of those are from the harem of maidens that he hooked up with. Galileo Galilei, whom we will also get to know a little bit better just a little bit later, he discovered the four biggest moons of Jupiter within the span of just one week in 1610. And when he first saw them, he thought that they were fixed stars. But when he noticed that the stars had shifted position in relation to Jupiter, and then one disappeared three days later, he knew that they couldn't be fixed stars and that they must be moons. Specifically, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. And these are referred to as the Galilean moons. The Roman and Greek mythology names, those didn't start until 1975. The early namers of the moons simply called them Jupiter 1, Jupiter 6, Jupiter 8 with Roman numerals. So as I go through some of these, I'll try to include their ID numbers as well. And these Galilean moons are pretty exciting places because all of them have ice and are believed to have subsurface liquid salt water oceans within them. Io is the moon that's closest to the planet and she was one of Zeus's friends with benefits who he turned into a cow to hide her from his jealous wife Hera. And because of its close proximity to Jupiter, it is theorized that Io experiences tidal heating and lava flows, making it one of the youngest surfaces and most volcanic places in our solar system. And this volcanic activity fills its atmospheres with chemicals like sulfur, which warms the surface and gives her this orangish-yellowish color. The only downside to being this close to Jupiter is where Io sits within the magnetic field, exposing it to crazy amounts of radiation. I mean, if there's life on Io, it has got to be way below the surface. Europa was another young lady smitten with Zeus who had taken the form of a bull and carried her all the way to Crete to procreate and the two populated the land of Europe. Europa is actually one of the stronger contenders to hold life in our solar system due to the erupting steam we have seen shooting out of her. And just like Io, she also expands and contracts with tidal heating generated from orbiting such a huge behemoth like Jupiter. And microbial life just might exist next to the hydrothermal vents in these theorized liquid water oceans that lie below. In fact, some scientists think that Europa may actually have more water and oxygen than Earth, and it's all trapped within this fantastic subsurface sea. Our next moon is named Ganymede, and it is the biggest moon in our solar system bigger than the planet Mercury. And this ice giant is named for a man who was a servant to Zeus. Nothing too risque there. And I think this name is pretty appropriate 
because I can think of no greater task than having to be the personal assistant to Zeus. I mean, how many cell phones does that guy have? Ganymede is also believed to have a salty ocean of water, which sits above a rocky center. Callisto is another moon, and the name of a woman who was scorned by Hera, who turned Callisto and her son into bears. And then Zeus tries to atone for his wife's actions by fixing them permanently into the heavens as Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, the Big Dipper and Little Dipper. Callisto, too, may have an underwater ice ocean that's heated by tidal forces. Now, I won't go into the stories behind every single moon, but I will highlight some and just name off the rest. Because that's why we're here, right? To learn stuff? Okay, here we go. Himalaya, Jupiter 6, was discovered in 1904 by Charles Dylan Perrine and is named for a sprite that bore Zeus three sons. And Charles Perrine discovered another Jupiter moon the very next year. Alera, Jupiter 7. And he also discovered a bunch of comets. And the Perrine crater on our moon is named for him. Pasiphae, or Jupiter 8, was found in 1908 by Philibert Jacques Melotte. Oh, you know I love to say that name. And Pasiphae was also destined to fall in love with a bull, who was actually Zeus in a bull costume, and she gives birth to the Minotaur. Gross. Philibert Jacques Malotte also discovered asteroid number 676 named Melita. Not for himself, but for the Greek Melissa, or the bee. Sinope was found in 1914 by Seth Barnes Nicholson while he was looking at Pasiphae. Now, Sinope wasn't a lover of Zeus, but rather another god, Apollo. And after Seth Nicholson finds Sinope, he calculates its orbit and uses it for his PhD thesis and went on to discover the moon's Carme, Jupiter 11th, Lysithea, daughter of Oceanus, Jupiter 10, and Anake, Jupiter 12, who was the mother of fates, and Adrastea, or nemesis to the Romans. Charles T. Cowell discovered Leda in 1974, and she wasn't a lover of Zeus, but rather a rape victim of Zeus in the form of a swan, resulting in the birth of the infamous Helen of Troy. And Charles Cowell also co-discovered the moon of Themisto the very next year. And he assisted in discovering comets, asteroids, and supernova in his career. And while he was doing his research, he actually came across a picture that was drawn by Galileo Galilei in 1613 that had Neptune in it near Jupiter. And this was 233 years before Neptune was even discovered. But you get the idea behind these moon names, and I encourage you to go and learn the stories behind all of these characters from mythology. Here are a few more. Almathea, Adrastia, Metis, Thebe, Killaro, and Pasithee. And the next 43 moons of Jupiter 
were all discovered between the years 2000 and 2003. And a scattered curiosity, astronomer Scott Shepard is either fully or partially credited with the discovery of all of them. And they are, and I might screw some of these names up, I'm sorry, Chaldine, Aranome, Harpalike, Iocast, who was the mother of Oedipus, Isonun, Kalyike, Magaclite, Praxodike, Taget, Aetna, Autono, Euthane, Europi, Eurodome, Hermippi, Kale, Orthosi, Sponed, Thion, Arch, Aod, Carpo, Silene, Eucalod, Hegemon, Helike, Kalachor, Kor, Neem, Felxino, and then the much less vibrantly named moons S2000J11 and S2000J2, J3, J4, J5, J9, J10, J12, J15 through 19, and J23. Most of these moons of Jupiter follow elliptical orbits, but some of them actually orbit backwards, you know, counter to the spin of Jupiter. And Uranus and Neptune have moons that behave this way too. But before we go there, we have to travel past Saturn first. Saturn is the Roman name for Kronos, who was the father of Zeus, whose fate was predicted to be that one of his children would one day kill him, so he swallows all of them at birth. But Zeus's mother had replaced him with a rock, and when Zeus grows up, he kills Kronos and frees his siblings. Now, the stories that are behind Saturn's moons are a little less explicit than Jupiter's. Titan was Saturn's first moon to be discovered in 1655 by Christian Huygens, of whom we spoke briefly in episode one of Scattered Curiosities entitled Let's Go Dutch. And Titan has a very heavy atmosphere of methane, which makes the surface unviewable from telescopes. On Earth, methane is generated in a couple of different ways, but one of them is organic life, which makes Titan another possible contender to host some form of life. Titan is most likely covered in hydrocarbon lakes, cryovolcanoes, and it has methane, rain, and snow. Titan, too, is bigger than the planet Mercury, and it was the site of the first moon landing in our solar system that wasn't our moon. In the year 2005, by a space probe that is half-named for Huygens, the Cassini-Huygens space probe. And that name makes sense because the next four Saturn moon discoveries are credited to Giovanni Cassini between the years 1671 and 1684. And they are Iapetus, a strange moon with two distinctive shapes of black and white, Rhea, Dion, who was the mother of Aphrodite by Zeus, and Tethius, who was the mother of Rhea and is said to have had 3,000 children with her brother Oceanus, and all of their kids became the lakes and ponds of the world. 
1789, William Herschel discovered Mimas, who was a giant that was killed by Hercules, and my favorite moon in the whole solar system, Enceladus, the hundred-armed giant that Zeus fought with his brothers. Enceladus is an extremely active moon that erupts plumes of water ice into space like Old Faithful at speeds of 1,360 miles per hour, and it is the source feeding the icy outer E-rings of Saturn. And all of the ice that doesn't go to the E-ring falls back to the surface, making it shiny and new, and one of the most reflective bodies in our solar system. And because it reflects so much sunlight, it's actually colder than Jupiter's other moons. Enceladus is Saturn's sixth biggest moon and has the youngest surface in the solar system and, quite possibly, the strongest contender for microbial life. The subsurface ocean on Enceladus is believed to be 99% water ice. And when the space probe Cassini did a flyby of Enceladus, it found evidence of hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen, which are good signs of life. Enceladus orbits Saturn every 32.9 hours, so it can be watched in an entire evening as it bypasses its sister moon, Dione, which causes tidal and volcanic heating to occur. And its core is most likely molten rock that heats this exciting snowy world. And when the Cassini probe observed a libration or a wobble in Enceladus's orbit, it determined that 19 to 25 miles below the ice layer lies a 6.2 mile deep ocean. Now to put that in perspective, Earth's oceans average a depth of only 2.3 miles. Hyperion, Saturn 7, was the next moon found in 1848 and was the first non-round moon ever discovered. Hyperion was the Titan father of Helios, the sun, Selene, the moon, and Eos, the dawn. The next few moons are Phoebe, mother of Artemis and Apollo, Epimetheus, Prometheus's brother, Janus Iapetus, the god of change and from whom we get the word January, Atlas, who was punished by Zeus and made to hold the world on his shoulders, and another non-round moon, Calypso, the sea witch who held Odysseus captive for seven years. Then there's Helene, who was a woman warrior that was stabbed by Achilles, who in turn fell in love with her as she died. Prometheus, giver of fire to mankind and punished by Zeus. Pandora, the woman who couldn't help but open the forbidden box given to her by Zeus, releasing all the evils of the world. Telesto. And Pan, the half-goat son of Hermes, Mercury, who plays the pipe, or pan flute, and is known for being a trickster, and also lends his name to the word panic and pandemonium. It, too, is an unspherical moon, and it kind of looks like one of those flying saucers from a 1950s B-movie. And the rest of the moons were discovered between 2000 and 2007, and I'm going to murder these names. I apologize. Here they are. 
Albiorix, Ariapo, Ijerekaepitis, Kivyuk, Mundulfare, Palak, Sirenok, Scathi, Suttinger, Travos, Thrymer, Ymir, Narvi, Anth, Methone, Pauline, Polydeuces, Ager, Bebion, Bergolamir, Besla, Defnis, Farbauti, Fenrir, Fornjot, Hadi, Greep, Hyrican, Jarnsaka, Kari, Loge, Skull, Surtur, Terkek, and S2004, S7, 12, 13, and 17, and S2006, S1, and S3, and S2007, S2, and S3. And Scott Shepard also co-discovered about half of these moons that were found in the 2000s as well. Uranus is the god of the sky who married his mother and sired the titans, giants, and other magical beings. And the planet is surrounded by a Summerstock theater's worth of characters from the plays of Shakespeare. The first two moons were discovered by William Herschel in 1787, and they are Titania, Queen of the Fairies in A Midsummer Night's Dream, and Oberon, King of the Fairies. Then there's Ariel, the sprightly sidekick to Prospero in The Tempest, Miranda, daughter of Prospero in The Tempest, Puck, the imp in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Bianca, the younger sister to Kate in Taming of the Shrew, and also Cat in Ten Things I Hate About You, rest in peace, Heath Ledger, Cordelia, daughter to King Lear, Cressida, who's from one of my favorite and lesser-known Shakespeare plays, Troilus and Cressida, Desdemona, who was Othello's wife, Juliet, do I have to explain this one? Ophelia, Hamlet's psycho girlfriend, Perdita from A Winter's Tale, Portia is either a rich woman from The Merchant of Venice or Brutus's wife in Julius Caesar. Rosalind from As You Like It. Caliban, the sea creature from The Tempest. Sycorax, the witch in The Tempest. Prospero, damn, these space guys just love The Tempest, huh? What about Richard II or A Comedy of Errors? Setebos, an evil god from The Tempest. Stefano, the drunkard, and a role that I actually played once in a production of The Tempest, although in our modernized version of it, he was a cokehead instead of a drunk. Francisco, from The Tempest. Margaret, who was a servant in Much Ado About Nothing. Ferdinand, from The Tempest. Trinculo, Stefano's sidekick in The Tempest. Mab, who was named for Queen Mab of the Fairies, who was referred to in Romeo and Juliet and Cupid from one play that I have never read, Timon of Athens. And the two non-Shakespearean moons are Belinda and Umbriel, who are named for characters in a poem titled The Rape of the Lock. Next in line is the gas giant Neptune, which is the Roman name for Poseidon, god of the sea and earthquakes, and brother to Zeus, Jupiter, and Hades, Pluto. Neptune is blue, very blue, like the sea, so the planet's name makes sense, 
and its moons have monikers that are equally aquatically related. You have Triton, the son of Poseidon, which very well may have a sea of its own beneath the surface. Triton is as big as Pluto, and it is one of those moons that orbits backwards. Nereid is named for the little pixies of the Mediterranean Sea. Naiad means river nymph. Despina, who is the daughter of Poseidon. You have Galatea, who was a Nereid. Larissa, who was a lover of Poseidon's. Proteus, who is either the son of Poseidon or Oceanus. Thalassa, which means sea. Seo is another Nereid, who is called the Rescuer. And finally, Halimede, Laomedea, Smaith, and Niso. Neptune 9, 10, 12, and 13. All named for the Nereid. Scattered curiosity, the moon Nereid is so uneven and irregularly shaped that its orbit is unlike any other moon in our solar system. And on the edge of that system lies the dwarf planet Pluto, which is the Roman name for Hades, god of the underworld. A moon named Charon, for the guy who sailed dead souls across the river Acheron, orbits Pluto. Charon also may have an internal ocean, which is comprised of water and ammonia, and it too has been observed experiencing cryovolcanic activity. Pluto was demoted to a dwarf planet in 2006 after Eris, which was once called Xena, yes, after the warrior princess, and it was discovered to be bigger than Pluto, and the two of them instantly got a bigger brother in the form of Ceres the biggest object in the asteroid belt, which was upgraded to Dwarf Planet. But Pluto is still very unique, because unlike the other planets that are past Mars, which are all gas giants, Pluto is rocky. Okay, now that we got the basics down, let's head back to the habitable, or Goldilocks zone of the solar system, and talk about our moon some more which is not only vital to life on Earth, but to a shared connection we have to our ancestors and every creature to ever look up at the night sky, from Velociraptors to Jonas Brothers. Pretty much since the beginning of history, human beings have seen pictures on the moon. This is a phenomenon called lunar periodolia, and the pictures people see are drawn by the dark spots, or Maria, on the moon, which were created by lava that filled in craters and cooled. And it paints the canvas on the light part of the moon. In fact, for the longest time, people thought the Maria were bodies of water, while others made the periodolia out to be animals, objects, or even people. You ever heard of the man in the moon? How about the moon rabbit? Other popular ones are a frog, buffalo, moose, a woman, a yin-yang, and even a dragon. Early civilizations not only saw pictures in the moon, but developed myths around them and celebrated rites during the moon's phases or eclipses. Many cultures thought the lunar eclipse was actually some creature swallowing the moon. 
Egyptians thought it was a sow. For the Chinese, it was a three-legged toad. Mayans and Incans saw a jaguar and believed when the jaguar was done eating the moon, it would come down and eat all the creatures on earth. So the Incans would hold their spears and yell at the moon to chase the jaguar away. Mesopotamians saw a lunar eclipse as seven demons attacking not only the moon, but their king as well. So during eclipses, they would fend off the demons by throwing rocks, and then they would have someone else pretend to be the king until it was over with, and then the substitute king would just disappear, if you get my meaning. The moon was even worshipped in some cultures, and many of them have built moon temples and pyramids to harness the power of moon magic. The two biggest pyramids in San Juan, Mexico, are the Sun Temple and the Moon Temple, and the Sun one is about half the size of the Great Pyramid of Giza. And they were built sometime between 200 and 250 A.D., and they were constantly being renovated. Wouldn't that be a great HGTV show? Pyramid Crashers? Excavations of the past 20 years have shown signs of at least six renovations of the Moon Plaza and have uncovered human skeletons, jewelry, wolf bones, pumas, snakes, jaguars, and blades made of obsidian on the site. The Inca have a moon temple, too. It's near Machu Picchu, Peru. Isn't that a fun sentence to say? And it was discovered in 1936, and the rituals performed there had nothing to do with the moon per se, but rather the way that the moonlight was emitted in the temple. Its full purpose is still up for debate. Arguments differ as to whether it was a royal tomb or a high point for watching over the region, a place of worship, or even a public bath. And in the same hemisphere, there is the Moon Temple of Chia, Colombia, built by followers of the Musica religion that worshipped the moon goddess Chia. Now, Spanish conquistadors destroyed the temple, and not a whole lot is known about it, but they seem to have had a pretty vast knowledge of astronomy, and they used the Sun Temple in concert with the Moon Temple and a host of many other temples that were spread out in the area. And they seem to have worn white robes in the Moon Temple and red ones in the Sun Temple. And on the other side of the world, you have the Temple of the Moon outside of West Beijing, China. Now the altar is gone, but the walls still remain as part of a public park and it was once a place of sacrificial rituals. And interestingly enough, these civilizations, along with Japan, Korea, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, Myanmar, Cambodia, and Thailand, amongst others, all saw the periodolia of a rabbit on the moon. And one of the first writings of the rabbit comes down to us from a poem where the gold rabbit, or jade rabbit, would collect herbs for all of mankind alongside a toad, both of whom are the companions of the moon goddess Chang'e. Buddhists tell a slightly different tale of how the rabbit got to the moon. An otter, a jackal, a monkey, and a rabbit 
Sounds like the setup for a great dirty joke, right? Anyway, all of these creatures are making offerings on the evening of a full moon, hoping to be rewarded for their generosity. And on the way to make their offerings, they encounter an old man who's begging for food, and the animals hop right to it. No pun intended for the rabbit. And to try to help the old guy out, the monkey brings him some fruit from a tree. The jackal brought him a pot of curded milk, and the otter brought him a fish. But the rabbit only knew how to gather grass. So he offers himself up to the old man and jumps onto the fire, but he doesn't get burned. Well, it turns out that the old man is Sakra, the ruler of heaven. And he's so impressed with the rabbit's sacrifice that he draws a picture of a rabbit on the moon to immortalize him. The Aztec's moon god simply takes the form of a rabbit. And Native Americans also tell stories of a rabbit on the moon. But theirs was the result of a rabbit wanting to ride the moon and hitching a ride by holding onto the legs of a crane. And since the rabbit was so heavy, the crane's legs got stretched out. And when they arrived at the moon, the rabbit then touches the crane on the forehead with his bloody paw, which is what gives the crane his red spot. Scattered curiosity, China's lunar rover U2 was named for the Jade Rabbit. And in Transformers Beast Wars 2, there is a robot rabbit that lives on the moon with Artemis. Then there's the 16th century Polish folktale of Pan Twardowski. Pan is a polite title, like Mr. or Sir. And Pan Twardowski makes a deal with the devil to get magic powers in exchange for his soul, but the devil can only take his soul if he enters Rome. Pan becomes rich and famous, and he starts working for the king, Sigismund Augustus. And when the king's wife, Barbara Radiswill, dies, Pan is able to use his magic powers and conjure up her spirit to appear in a magic mirror that he gives to the king. And then Pan goes on to pen two books that were dictated to him by Satan, kind of like a bizarro world Joseph Smith, and one of them is an encyclopedia, and the other is a magic book. Pan manages to avoid Rome this entire time, but eventually gets tricked by the devil when he finds himself at an inn by the name of Rizm, R-Z-Y-M, which means Rome in Polish. And as Pan is being taken to hell, which is in the sky through outer space, he prays to the Virgin Mary, who comes to his rescue, and the devil drops Pan on the moon while en route to hell, and Pan still lives there to this very day. You may have seen paintings of Pan Twardowski either riding a rooster or simply standing on the moon. And a super bonus curiosity... During the Apollo 11 mission to the moon, there's a conversation between NASA and Buzz Aldrin that goes like this. This is Houston, quote, Among the large headlines concerning Apollo this morning, there's one asking that you watch for a lovely girl with a big rabbit. 
An ancient legend says a beautiful Chinese girl called Chang'o has been living there for 4,000 years. It seems she was banished to the moon because she stole the pill of immortality from her husband. You might also look for her companion, a large Chinese rabbit, who is easy to spot since he's only standing on his hind feet in the shade of a cinnamon tree. The name of the rabbit is not recorded. End quote. And Buzz Aldrin simply responds, quote, Okay, we'll keep a close eye out for the bunny girl. End quote. Now, if you're skeptical that we even landed on the moon, you probably don't believe that story. Did you know that between 6 and 20% of Americans and 28% of Russians believe that the moon landing was faked? Now, variations that are given by moon hoax theorists are that we did land machines on the moon, but not humans, due to the exposure to solar wind, cosmic rays, solar flares, and the hour and a half that you would have to journey through the Van Allen radiation belts, which scientists have measured to be about the same level of radiation that you would get from either living at sea level for three years or working in a nuclear power plant for one year. Other moon hoax theorists argue that the moon's surface gravity couldn't possibly support a lander or that we would have been able to get men to the moon, but returning astronauts in 1969 would have been impossible. Another reason people believe that the moon landing was faked was because of the Cold War and the space race between the United States and Russia. A moon landing would put any country in a dominant position, and the Russians were way ahead of the United States when they shot Yuri Gagarin into space, making him the first human being to orbit the Earth in 1961. A moon landing would be a dangerous mission, costing millions, and would frankly be hard which is President Kennedy's exact reason in 1962 when he said, we choose to go to the moon because it is hard. But beyond that, Russia was working on getting to the moon too. And the Soviet Luna program will get credit for being the first to land something on the moon, but not someone in 1966. Getting to the moon was an issue of national security for both countries, which is why the following year the Outer Space Treaty is signed, which states that no nation can claim the ownership of the moon's surface and that all of outer space is the province of mankind, although American flags and Soviet pennants are strewn all over the moon. Of course, now they're all bleached white due to the sun's radiation. The Outer Space Treaty also states that the moon is to be used for peaceful purposes only, and it outlaws weapons and military presence there. The whole moon landing conspiracy seems to have been sparked by a self-published book in 1976 by Bill Casing, who was a former U.S. naval officer and author for Rocketdyne, who was the company that made the F-1 engine for the Saturn V rocket. And the book is titled, We Never Went to the Moon, 
America's $30 billion swindle. And in it, he says that there is only a .0017% chance that a manned mission to the moon could have safely been possible in 1969 and that it would be easier and cheaper to just fake it. And the conspiracies take off from there. And just four years later, a group called the Flat Earth Society believed that the moon landings were faked with the help of the Walt Disney Corporation and Stanley Kubrick. Why? Because two years earlier, a movie called Capricorn One about a fake landing on Mars used a rocket that looked just like the Apollo 11 lander and the movie about the fake Mars landing within the movie Capricorn One is directed by Stanley Kubrick. It's unclear exactly how Disney fits in, other than they were, and are, an entertainment company that could afford to fund such an endeavor. Because Kubrick also directed 2001 A Space Odyssey, the thought was Kubrick loaned his spaceships to NASA after the film wrapped in 1968 and went on to direct the first three moon landings where the launchings would be completely real, with astronauts on board, but after takeoff, they would simply orbit the planet until their scheduled re-entry and splashdown to Earth. Everything in between, all the footage on the moon's surface, supposedly came from the Hollywood genius's creation. And this isn't the first conspiracy related to the movies. On September 9th, 2002, a filmmaker of the documentary A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Moon got punched in the face by Buzz Aldrin after he called Buzz a coward and a liar and a thief because Aldrin went along with the fake moon landings. And the L.A. County DA's office refused to file charges against Buzz Aldrin on account that Aldrin was provoked. And because we did go to the moon. In 2009, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter mission took pictures of the original experiment sites and you could still see the footpaths and the lunar rover tracks and the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiment Package, or ALSEP. And they're all still there. Even my favorite space show, Futurama, rest in peace, has Harry Truman scrapping the fake moon landing and developing NASA after Fry travels back in time and becomes his own grandfather in the episode Roswell That Ends Well. And the pickled head of Richard Nixon's thoughts admit that the fake moon landings really happened on Venus in the Futurama movie Into the Wild Green Yonder. Listen, even if you think that the moon landings were faked, remember that Russia had already been to space before us, with five times the amount of manned space travel by the time that we even got in the race. Remember the Cold War thing? They were not a friendly nation with us at the time. Russia widely publicized putting their first man-made satellite into space, Sputnik 1 in 1957. Also, the first animal, a dog on Sputnik 2 in 1957, 
the first man in orbit, 1961. The first woman in orbit, Valentina Tereshkova in 1963. And the first spacewalk done by Leninov in 1965. Russia was pretty uncomfortable with the fact that the United States caught up to them in just one year, and they were certainly keeping tabs on what the U.S. was doing and had the ability to monitor the Apollo missions at the Space Transmission Corps, and did. If we didn't land on the moon in 1969, they would have called us out on it. They would have loved it. Yet, people still think the whole ruse was put on, so NASA could keep its $25.4 billion funding. That would consequently have to be paid out in order to keep the over 400,000 people who had worked on the Apollo mission in some capacity, scientists, technicians, engineers, control room operators, and the 12 men that stepped on the moon, the six who flew there, and the six who orbited it, you would have to keep all of those people quiet for 40 to 50 years. I mean, in my opinion, it would be way easier to just go to the moon than to count on that many people to keep that big of a secret for the rest of their lives. But if you still don't believe me, and you're one of those that believes that the Apollo landings were faked in order to distract the country from the Vietnam War with the use of doctored pictures, let me refer you to another brilliant TV show, called Mythbusters. In their NASA moon landing episode, they bust all of the claims of artificial coloring, seemingly impossible angles, and shadows that are seen in the pictures that were taken during the Apollo missions and released by NASA. The truth is, shadows on the moon can vary greatly due to the unlevel surface, moon dust, reflected light, and simply camera exposure. People argue that there is obviously a spotlight being used in the pictures, but they don't take into account that the light in these pictures is coming from many different sources. The sun reflecting from the moon's surface, and the sun's reflection from the earth, and the astronauts' helmets, and their white suits. Other problems that people have with the Apollo photos is that pictures that were said to have been taken miles away from one another had the same background, like a backdrop scenery in a high school play. Reason? On Earth, things that are far away have less detail and are not quite as clear due to our atmosphere. The moon is devoid of an atmosphere, and clouds, and smog, and therefore... Faraway objects look different on the moon. One popular argument is, if Neil Armstrong was the first person on the moon, who took the picture on the outside of the lunar lander of him stepping on it? A camera on the lunar module. Neil turned on the equipment while he was at the top of the stairs outside the module. Scattered curiosity? After the Apollo 12 mission, bacteria was found on the mounted cameras of the lunar lander. And for a while, people were really excited that there was life on the moon. But it was later determined that the bacteria actually came from Earth because the equipment that was used for the mission was simply not sterilized properly and just happened to survive in space. 
You see, NASA actually takes pretty good care to disinfect everything that they send into space because biological contamination is ethically wrong. What about temperature? Some conspiracy theorists argue that the sunlight would have been so hot that the cameras used would have melted. But remember, there is no atmosphere on the moon to hold the heat to anything that's not on the surface. The vacuum of outer space blows off the heat, leaving only the radiation behind. The cameras that were used on Apollo were coated with a special paint that protects the film from such radiation. Now, the surface of the moon does indeed get hot during a moon noon, which is why the Apollo landings happened right at sunrise. Remember, we're dealing with moon time. One day on the moon is 29.5 days on Earth. So the transition from night to day is about two weeks. But facts get in the way of imagination, don't they? Which is why people have been using the moon as an inspiration for so many myths and beliefs and films and pieces of literature, including witches, vampires, and werewolves. Tales of people turning into wolves, called lycanthropy, goes as far back as ancient Greek mythology with the story of Lycaon, which is about a guy who turned into a wolf after killing his own child during a religious ceremony and feeding it to the gods. The ancient Greeks believed that the only way to heal lycanthropy was to exhaust the corrupt individual with continuous physical activity to weaken the wolf away. The Viking Northmen didn't have werewolves, but instead had the Ulfidnar, which were these crazy Viking fighters who were wearing wolf hides instead of actually becoming wolves, but terrifying nonetheless. In medieval Europe, the three main ways to cure a werewolf were surgery, exorcism, or with a medicine called wolfsbane. Sicilians thought that you could knock the werewolf out of the affected person if you hit him on the forehead with a knife or hammer nails through their wolf hands. And yet other cultures maintained that a werewolf could easily be cured by simply speaking their Christian name three times aloud, a la Beetlejuice, or by scolding them like a bad dog. These Christian overtones and myths about werewolves were used by the Holy Roman Empire to kind of keep people in check. Troublemakers for the empire would be excommunicated because they were tainted. Lycanthropy was seen as a punishment from God. And werewolves and other shapeshifters have been part of human cultures for centuries, most popularly through European folktales. Now, wolf attacks in Europe are rare, but they are one of only a few predators native to the area, and people then, and now, frankly, fear them. It was believed that you could spot a shapeshifter, even if they were in their human form, if they had eyebrows at the bridge of their nose, low-hanging ears, and curled fingernails. And those lycanthropes could turn into a werewolf by using magic ointment, sipping rainwater from a wolf's footprint, 
sleeping outside on a Wednesday or Friday during a full moon, or, of course, being bitten by one. And the madness from turning into a werewolf from a wolf bite is most likely stemmed from the disease rabies. Although sometimes the person didn't turn into a wolf, but rather rode on the back of a wolf or engaged in wolf charming or moon magic rituals during certain phases of the moon, usually when it's full, transforming them physically, mentally, or both. Werewolves started getting mixed into a larger group of demons that included witches and vampires, and the angry mob trials against all three of them started in the 15th century in what is now Switzerland. And the fad spread through Europe during the 16th century and hit its popularity in the 17th century. Wolf trials and witch hunts were an ordinary part of some of these societies, though there were way more witch cases than werewolf ones. And then these trials made their way to the colonies in the New World and led to the infamous Salem witch trials of early America. Scattered curiosity, some Asian cultures have were-tigers and were-leopards instead of werewolves in their folklore. 19th century Greeks thought that if you didn't destroy a wolf's body after it died, it would come back to life and drink the blood of wounded soldiers. And people in Germany and northern France and Poland believed that the worst sinners would come back to life as these blood-licking wolves and then return to their dead human bodies during the daytime. And the only cure that they found to be effective was decapitation alongside an exorcism, and then the head would be thrown into a river. Similar fates would be held in store for vampires in the Eastern European nations of Hungary, Slovenia, Serbia, and Bulgaria. In 1584, Reginald Scott writes The Discovery of Witchcraft, and in it he says that werewolves aren't real, but that, quote, lycanthropia is a disease and not a transformation, end quote. And he goes on to call lycanthropy a kind of insanity where a person believes they are a wolf and acts upon that belief. Although that assertion will not prove helpful in 1692 when an octogenarian you know, someone who's in their 80s, in Jurgensburg, Livonia, by the name of Thies, was accused of lycanthropy, and he went under oath and stated that werewolves, including himself, were the hounds of God. And then he went on to say that these wolves go down to the underworld and fight with demons and minions and witches to keep them from stealing crops from local farmers. And he claimed that wolves in Russia and Germany did the same thing. And when these werewolves died, they went to heaven. He was punished for idolatry and given ten lashes. In modern werewolf fiction circa 1935 to the present, werewolves are defeated with weapons made of silver. Though Bram Stoker may have done it first in 1897 in a chapter of Dracula titled Dracula's Guest, where, 
The Count himself takes the form of a wolf that can only be killed with a sacred bullet. But Stoker makes no mention of it being specifically made of silver. The 1935 film A Werewolf in London gave us the first anthropomorphic werewolf where the guy keeps on the same clothes and human features after morphing into basically a hairy guy with fangs. This was greatly due to the fact that the actor playing the part, Henry Hull, didn't want to sit in a makeup chair for crazy hours every single morning. And who could blame him? Makeup back then could be toxic. Just ask Buddy Edson, a.k.a. Jed Clampett of the Beverly Hillbillies. See, he was originally cast as the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz, but he got sick from the toxic silver makeup that they put on him, and he had to cede the role to Jack Haley. By 1941, though, someone was willing to put on the wolf makeup for the iconic universal horror classic, The Wolfman. And that man's name? Lon Chaney Jr., the film's makeup was revolutionary at the time and brought the werewolf back into the public eye. And since then, Hollywood werewolves have gotten stronger, faster, and sexier with the ability to self-heal when ordinary weapons are used against them. And as I stated before, in modern films and literature, you must use a silver bullet, a silver blade, or a silver-tipped cane to kill a werewolf. And you don't always have to be bit by a werewolf anymore to become one. Sometimes it's hereditary, like in the classic film Teen Wolf and the never-should-have-been-made sequel Teen Wolf 2. Also common to newer werewolf stories, the lycanthrope is able to keep their powers and strengths even when they are in their human form. Scattered Curiosity, Werewolf, with just one E, was the code name for one of Adolf Hitler's headquarters in World War II, and Operation Werewolf was a secret Nazi plan to fight the Allies behind enemy lines. And because of this, the HBO original series True Blood has an episode that shows Nazi soldiers in 1945 as werewolves. As you can see, the moon has given inspiration to storytelling for quite some time, and here are a few that you may have missed that I plan to read right after I finish editing this episode. The first one, The Improbable Adventures of Baron Munchausen, was written in 1786 and includes two trips to the moon, which, in the story, is covered in lush plant life. Washington Irving's The Conquest of the Moon in 1809 is a political statement regarding European settlers' mistreatment of Native Americans. Edgar Allan Poe writes The Unparalleled Adventure of One Hans Fall in 1835, and it is about a character that lives in Rotterdam and works fixing the bellows of the town, and he invents this huge balloon and a device that can compress enough air to carry him to the moon in the balloon. And there's also The Galoshes of Fortune, written by Hans Christian Andersen in 1838. And in that one, there's a night watchman who puts on a pair of mystical galoshes that make wishes come true. 
and he wishes to go to the moon, and his spirit is lifted out of his body and transported to the moon. And when he arrives, the people that inhabit the moon are looking at the earth the way that he looked at the moon and wondering if anybody lives there, but they think that it's impossible. Meanwhile, the seemingly dead body of the night watchman that's left behind on earth is brought to a hospital and the galoshes are removed from the corpse and then the guy's spirit returns to his body, giving him life again and probably scaring the doctor to death. And he tells the whole experience to the astonished nurses as a horrible nightmare. Jules Verne, of course, gave us From Earth to the Moon in 1865 and its sequel Around the Moon in 1870. And Verne's novel has the rocket being launched out of Florida and landing in the Pacific Ocean. Kind of an eerie foreshadowing to the Apollo landing a hundred years later, huh? And A Trip to the Moon will be the inspiration for the 1902 French silent film Le Voyage dans la Lune, which gave us the iconic scene of the rocket landing right in the eye of the superimposed man's face on the moon. I'm certain you've seen this public domain clip before, especially if you watched Muppet Babies as a kid. Then there's The Princess of the Moon, a Confederate fairy story, written by Cora Sem's Ives just a few years after the American Civil War, and in it, the fairy of the moon comes down to Earth to help a Confederate soldier after the war by giving him a horse that can fly, and he soars over the country and decides to go to the moon and meets the king of the moon people, has a romance with the princess of the moon, and then helps the moon people fight off Yankee soldiers who are invading the moon in their hot air balloons. Susan Beth Pfeffer takes on an interesting idea in her 2006 book, Life As We Knew It, where an asteroid hits the moon and knocks its orbit closer to Earth. Scary, huh? And while I was doing research for this episode, I found a TV show and a movie that I've got to see. I guess in 1987, there was a TV show called Star Cops, which was a sexy police show that took place on the moon. Awesome. And then in 2012, there was a movie called Iron Sky, where Nazis assault the Earth from their headquarters on the far side of the moon, and they're fought off by President Sarah Palin. Some great songs that are about or in reference to the moon are Dancing in the Moonlight by Thin Lizzy, Moonchild by King Crimson, Moon Shadow by Cat Stevens, Moonage Daydream, David Bowie, Moonlight Drive by The Doors, Bad Moon Rising, CCR, Moondance, Van Morrison, Blue Moon by Richard Rogers and covered by a million people, Sail to the Moon by Radiohead, and Fly Me to the Moon by Bart Howard, but made popular by Frank Sinatra. One Moon song that I don't like, and maybe the only R.E.M. song I don't like, is Man on the Moon. And it served as the title for the 1999 film about the eccentric comedian Andy Kaufman, 
which, by the way, was played expertly by Jim Carrey. And the song talks about Andy Kaufman's wrestling and Elvis impersonations and the idea that he might have even faked his own death in 1984. So when R.E.M. was recording the song for their album, Automatic for the People, Michael Stipe was experiencing writer's block and he had no lyrics to accompany the song. So he put on some headphones and listened to the track while he was walking around Seattle and somehow got inspired by Andy Kaufman, came back to the studio, recorded the song with his newly discovered lyrics, and it was mixed and mastered the very same night. And in my opinion, it is evident that it was kind of slapped together in one night. Please don't hate me, Michael Stipe. I otherwise think that you are a genius. There are even a few Beatles songs that I don't care for. And I freaking love the Beatles. The last topic I wanted to discuss, I thought I'd make you wait for it, is that of mooning. Not mooning in the sense of the song from the musical Grease, meaning dumbstruck with love or drifting aimlessly. I'm talking about the act of mooning itself. And I love Wikipedia's definition of it so much that I'm just going to read it to you. Mooning is, quote, the act of displaying one's bare buttocks by removing clothing, e.g. by lowering the backside of one's trousers and underpants, usually bending over, whether also exposing the genitals or not, end quote. Other sources describe mooning as a way to express contempt, to challenge, offend, anger, amuse, or simply to flaunt. We all remember the scene in Braveheart where Mel Gibson and the Scots moon the English invaders. Well, that wasn't just an excuse to get some dirty man buns on film. That was a real thing. As far back as the year 66, Flavius Joseph wrote about mooning, saying that it originally happened during the first Roman-Jewish war, when a Roman soldier mooned some Jewish settlers, which sparked a riot where the Jews threw stones at the soldiers, and then the soldiers turned around and attacked back, killing 10,000 Jewish settlers. And in 1204, the Greeks mooned the Crusaders after they knocked them from the walls during the siege of Constantinople, now Istanbul. In some places in the world, Mooning is considered indecent exposure, but generally depends on whether the genitals are showing or if it was sexually motivated. In 2006, a Maryland circuit court said that mooning was a way to express yourself artistically and is therefore protected by the First Amendment of the United States if the genitals are not seen. They argued that if half a buttocks were indecent, then all thong bikinis in America would be banned from beaches. Since 2016, public mooning in Victoria, Australia is a criminal offense. Probably because Bart wouldn't let the prime minister kick him in the butt with a boot. But here in the United States, on the second Saturday of July, is the countrywide Annual Mooning of Amtrak Trains, 
that originated in Laguna Niguel, California in 1979. And it is just what it sounds like. People across America near train tracks will moon Amtrak passengers on this day. And while some people could get away with a public mooning in 2005 unscathed, Ozzy Osbourne to the audience of the UK Music Hall of Fame Awards, others will get a $10,000 fine. Randy Moss of the Minnesota Vikings after only fake mooning Green Bay Packers fans after scoring a touchdown. NFL fans are so touchy. And it is no mistake that the shape of the buttocks, which resembles that of the moon, is the shape that you find on outhouses to this very day. And here's one last scattered curiosity that I learned while doing research for this episode, but I never got to use. A hyperbolic paraboloid is the shape of a horse saddle or a Pringles potato chip. That's hyperbolic paraboloid. Now go do some smart snacking. Maybe on a moon pie. Invented in 1917 in Tennessee when Earl Mitchell asked a Kentucky coal miner what the perfect snack would be, and he replied something with graham crackers and marshmallows that was, quote, as big as the moon, end quote. They are often thrown from Mardi Gras floats in parades along the Mississippi Gulf Coast and are plentiful at the annual R.C. and Moon Pie Festival in Bell Buckle, Tennessee, and the Moon Pie Eating Contest in Bessemer, Alabama. Just a few of the many ways to enjoy this chocolate-covered sandwich. And also happening on the moon right now, the new Mystery Science Theater 3000 on Netflix. Listen, folks, I'm a purist and a huge fan of the show. And for those of you who are also true MST3K fans, believe me, I bugged out when Joel first left the show and Mike took over, but I grew to love Mike's unique style and cool delivery. When Trace left the show and Bill took over for Crow, I had to adjust to that, and now I love him too. Kevin Murphy is a freaking genius, and I support Rift Tracks Live, and so should you. But I gotta hand it to these new guys on the Satellite of Love. They have taken really good care of the classic series. They are funny, they are silly, and bring awareness to the show that we all fell in love with like 30 years ago. And they got Patton Oswalt, too, who has seen a ton of films. And if you don't believe me, read his book, Silver Screen Fiend. Congrats to everyone. I hope you all got a fat check from Netflix. It literally is the only reason that I uncanceled my Netflix account. And as usual, I have talked longer than expected, and I didn't even get to the topic of the telescope which is important because it is how all of the moons we've talked about today were discovered. And I debated as to whether or not I should include it in this episode, but if I did, then we would be sitting here for another hour. So, I'm going to save that topic for next month's full-length episode of Scattered Curiosities. <laughs>
like to help us keep the curiosities coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.